The topics I'm going to cover um, are somewhat varied. I've got a, a little selection here. Um, I've got a historical uh, section on, uh, on Bragg, and I'll tell you who he is. He, he was a professor at UCL, was the uh, interesting part. And then I'm going to talk about X-ray diffraction, and I'm also going to talk about um, uh, user facilities, and then get into some of the details about how we use these uh, synchrotron facilities um, to develop technology that, uh, uh, that is going on actively at the London Center for Nanotechnology. So I didn't, oh, last on the list, but it won't be the last topic, is the uh, discussion of nanocrystals uh, and nanoparticles. Okay, <clears throat> so this, I'm told, is, the, um, is, is a week dedicated to science and technology. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, and I'm not quite sure who dedicated it. Um, but what I have found is that uh, this is apparently going through UNESCO at the moment. Uh, they're trying to declare 2003 as an international year of crystallography. And the reason for this is that this man, uh, Lawrence Bragg, uh, came up with this uh, very famous uh, uh, law of uh, physics um, in 1913, and it will be the 100th anniversary of that next year. So 2013 is uh, designated as the, uh, as the year of crystallography. Um, just to be brief about it, crystallography has revolutionized uh, all of the physical sciences, biological, chemical, and physical. Um, and, um, and has led to something like 10 Nobel Prizes over the, over the time since uh, Bragg discovered this law. So it's really quite important for probing the structure of matter. So the, this is the only equation I'll show in the talk, but basically the idea is this equation represents the fact that if you have atoms inside uh, your sample, which might be a medical sensor or a piece of crystal or something, um, then the light that scatters from one atom can interfere with the light that scatters from the next one. And if you get the angle right, they will interfere constructively over here. And if you get the angle wrong, they interfere destructively and cancel each other out. And so Bragg formulated that as a connection between the spacing of the atoms in the crystal and the wavelength of the, uh, the X-rays which are used. Um, and this uh, uh, very simple formula, which is just an optical uh, geometric uh, formula, uh, has been carried on through the 100 years since, uh, since the discovery of this uh, to discover the structure of all kinds of interesting things. And I've used it for uh, 35 years in my own career to look at the structure of matter. So one of the things I'm going to try to do today is to explain how we can see the structure of matter using, uh, using X-ray diffraction. Um, <clears throat> this is not a, an example picked at random. This is a very, very important example from the 1950s where uh, Rosalind Franklin uh, made the first measurements with X-ray diffraction of DNA. And this led to uh, the structure of DNA, which we all know of as a double helix. Um, and here is the double helix as proposed by uh, Watson and Crick in 1952. And the uh, data that they used to get that uh, information, which is about the structure of the gene, and very, very fundamental in, in science, that information all comes from this one photograph that was taken with x-rays on DNA by Rosalind Franklin in 1952. Um, and I downloaded this picture from Wikipedia, I think. Um, the total size of the picture is just uh, 11 kilobytes, so it's a tiny little uh, amount of data. But within this uh, single picture is all of the information that tells you everything about the story of life, which is encoded in this DNA molecule. 
So, for example, the spacing of the base pairs which occur that contain the uh, sequence of the, of the DNA is contained in the position of this uh, Bragg peak out here, which comes at uh, a spacing according to the Bragg law that I already told you of 3.4 angstroms. And this X-shaped uh, diffraction pattern in the center comes from the fact that it's a, a helical structure, and that was something that uh, uh, Crick himself was the expert on. And so they recognized it when Rosalind Franklin got this picture that it was a helical structure. And then a fine point, but extremely important, was the fact that this spot over here is missing. So the fourth spot in the row is, is not present. And the only explanation for that is that it's not one helix, but two helices. And the two helices are offset from each other by one quarter of the period of the helix. And that was interpreted by Watson as corresponding to two helices running in opposite directions. So all of those very important things for the copying of genes, those three facts, the base pairs on the center, the uh, helical structure, and this uh, double helix where the two, uh, the, the, the parent and the, and the child uh, copy of the gene are actually uh, built into the same structure, all comes from this one uh, diffraction pattern. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you about the Braggs. There's actually two of them. Um, and they jointly got the Nobel Prize in 1915. So Bragg father and Bragg son, this was about their ages at the time when they got the Nobel Prize. Um, <clears throat> Bragg father, uh, William Henry Bragg, um, was a student in, was born in Britain, a student in Cambridge, and went to Adelaide as a professor of mathematics. And uh, Lawrence Bragg uh, was born in Australia, and Australia is now very proud of uh, him as a as a scientist, uh, uh, one of the most famous scientists from Australia. Um, during their lifetime uh, was the discovery of x-rays in 1895 by, uh, by Röntgen, and immediately used, as I think many people know, to take x-rays of broken limbs so that you could, uh, um, you could repair them. And in fact, the very first uh, patient of an x-ray machine in uh, Australia was Lawrence Bragg, because he fell off his bicycle and he broke his arm, and the father had an x-ray machine and took an x-ray and took it to the doctor and they figured out how to fix his arm. Um, <clears throat> more importantly for this talk uh, were the experiments that uh, Henry uh, Bragg started in uh, about 1904. He'd trained as a mathematician and only got interested in uh, doing experiments after a visit by, by Ernest Rutherford uh, on his way from New Zealand to, uh, uh, to Britain to become a professor in Cambridge. Uh, first in Manchester, then in Cambridge. Um, and uh, the news about uh, the x-rays was traveling very fast, but the properties of x-rays were really uh, still being discovered. And one of the key steps uh, taken by Bragg was to discover that you could measure the intensity of x-rays using the ionization property of the air. And so he developed these methods uh, while he was still in Adelaide. And... <clears throat> um, uh, fairly shortly after that, he got a, a, a nomination from the, the Royal Society and came to take up a, a position in Britain. And a couple of years later, ended up at UCL as the Quain Professor of Physics. And that was the same year that both Braggs got the, uh, uh, the Nobel Prize. And the prize was given for this discovery of Bragg's Law, which is the thing that I, uh, I, I just uh, discussed. I also highlighted this because uh, I was in Munich last week and they were very proud of the fact that in March of 1912 was the actual discovery of X-ray diffraction itself and that was done by uh, Max von Lauer um, where they 
put a crystal into one of these X-ray beams and discovered that the, uh, instead of the radiation coming out in every direction, it came out just in a few very specific directions, uh, similar to these, uh, uh, these peaks that we're seeing over here on this uh, diffraction pattern. And it was uh, the Braggs who put their heads together and figured out why that was happening, and that was formulated as this Bragg law. So it was the combination of von Lauer's experiment and the theory of the, of the Braggs that led to this big, uh, uh, big breakthrough. Okay, um, so now I'm going to talk a little bit more about X-ray sources because there's been quite a bit of progress uh, in these over the, over the years. So Röntgen's original X-ray tube was uh, 1896. Uh, that's shown on this graph, which is a very expanded scale of brightness of source versus time. And what you can see is that for many, many years, everybody lived with similar kinds of technology to what uh, Röntgen had uh, uh, come up with, which is just a, uh, an accelerating voltage and an electron source and a target. And that was developed in Japan uh, to a rotating anode uh, source in around the 1970s. Um, but what really took off was the development of synchrotron radiation. I'm going to tell you uh, what that's uh, all about. So here are two versions of the same curve. But notice the scale. This is going from 10 to the 10 photons per second in some units to 10 to the 34. So this is 14 orders of, 24 orders of magnitude increase uh, going to these free electron lasers, which people are playing with uh, today. And this, of course, enables a great deal of new kinds of uh, science. But it also has an interesting sociological uh, consequence. Um, here is Britain's uh, brightest uh, uh, light source. Um, <clears throat> it's located somewhere between Oxford and uh, Didcot and Reading and Newbury out in the uh, uh, west of London area. It's out in the country because this, uh, the diameter of this uh, machine is, uh, um, is several hundred meters uh, across. Um, and it's a particle accelerator. The uh, particles are, ex there are electrons running around in a circle inside here. I've got a second picture up here. Oops. Second picture here. So it's a, a particle accelerator storing electrons. They're running around in, in this direction. And they're accelerated to nearly the speed of light, 3 GeV, and <clears throat> running with a current of uh, a couple of hundred uh, milliamps. And every place where the acceleration takes place to keep them in orbit, X-rays are generated and spilled off. And they come off as a tangential beam, which is then running down in the hallway outside this uh, accelerator. And they've built uh, something like 30 or 35 uh, uh, separate experiments inside this building that all look at that same source from a different angle. So they, each of them gets fed with a, a different beam. And you can see one of the long beam lines is coming outside the building here, and they're now built, but there are additional beam lines coming outside. Uh, this is the one that I'm uh, currently planning to use, which goes up 250 meters away from the, uh, from the source. So there's a building out here now which is... Uh, uh, housing the experiments that, uh, uh, that are done here. Now, this kind of science uh, doesn't come cheaply. This machine costs 350 million pounds to build. And the reason that that's cost effective is that it's shared by not 350 million, but uh, some tens of thousands of scientists who come here, roughly 5,000 per year are coming to do experiments. And everybody gets a few days on one of these uh, 30 stations that uh, you're able to do experiments on. But you get enough time that you can complete an experiment and then go home and publish it. And the 
big advantage uh, for the users of the facility is that they don't have to maintain the lab themselves. They get to benefit from a professional team that runs it for, uh, for you, and then you can, uh, you can do your experiment on that, uh, uh, on, on that piece of, uh, uh, on, on, that on that piece of equipment that's been built for you. And this is the meat of the, of the machine, which is an X-ray undulator that produces copious amounts of, of X-rays uh, shooting in a straight line that uh, feeds a, an experiment. Okay, um, I'm going to, could I ask for the lights to be turned down? Because I'm going to do uh, a short demonstration here. Um, because of the cost and size of the machine, I can't bring a, uh, a synchrotron uh, to show you. But I can bring uh, a laser to show you. This laser pointer, which is not particularly special, it's slightly brighter than a typical laser pointer. You can buy these on the street in Hong Kong for 100 Hong Kong dollars. So this is, and this has got far more coherent photons in it than that synchrotron that I just uh, talked to you, uh, to you about. But the difference is the wavelength is 1,000 times longer, so the things we can look at are 1,000 times bigger. But I'm going to show you a couple of demonstrations of things that you can look at. Um, so talking of Hong Kong dollars, uh, Hong Kong's currency is better than British currency because it has a, a fraud detection panel in it. And if I shine the, uh, the laser here through the, through the plastic uh, piece inside the money, you can see that there's a lot of uh, structure that appears. And as I move it around, the streaks and spots all uh, redistribute themselves. That's because it's diffracting from the, uh, from the hologram which has been inserted into this money as a fraud uh, protection. Um, while we're on the subject, I also have an Australian one which, uh, uh, which also works. Um, and one day we'll have them. The Hong Kong one is better than the Australian one. But, uh, uh, but anyway, so th these are uh, holograms, transparent holograms which are built into the, uh, into the, uh, into the money. And if we do a more sort of conventional experiment, I've got a, a small hole in a piece of metal here. And if I shoot the beam through that small hole, those at the front at least, and if the lights were to turn down, we would see that there's a, a couple of streaks. And if you look really closely, and if I stand back, uh, you can see that the streaks are actually modulated with, uh, with fringes. And this is the diffraction pattern of the, of the slit. So the idea here is that the, um, that the uh, microstructure, which in the case of a laser is on the micron length scale, is accessible through this diffraction phenomenon that I'm just demonstrating here. And you can learn a lot about the structure of things uh, with light. You can look at uh, micron scale. With x-rays, you can look at nanometer scale. And that's where the ability to look at the atoms inside a, a material uh, comes from. So this is a piece of machined aluminum. Um, the machinists who cut this use two different tools, and if I shine the, uh, if I shine the light on this surface, you can see uh, one kind of pattern, which is due to the tiny little grooves on the, on the scale that the machinist uh, cut the pattern. If I rotate this, the, uh, the piece around and look at a different part, I get a different pattern because he used, a different, he used uh, an end mill for this side and a fly cutter for this side. So uh, you can see very clearly there's a big difference between these two uh, kinds of machine surfaces, and it's a very straightforward thing to, to look at. But you can also just put it under a microscope and do it. Okay, well, where Bragg comes in is if we look at a regular object such as a crystal, and I can model that with... Um, with looking at a, a grating, and if I put the grating on the screen, you see a lot of 
uh, a lot of beams coming out. These are the Bragg peaks that uh, come from the, uh, the scattering from that uh, lattice, which is inside the, uh, inside the grating here, uh, seen with, uh, with visible light. And if I look at an even more exotic grating, then let's see what we've got here. I picked this one at random. Um, we've got a, a, a pattern that somebody has engineered into that grating to make it look like a uh, make it look like an image. Now there are no lenses in anything that I'm showing you here. This is just diffraction from uh, a piece of plastic which is inside this uh, inside this tip here. And there's another one. You can see it looks like I'm projecting an image, but in fact, what uh, the engineer has done is generate uh, a diffraction, generate an object whose diffraction pattern is the man in the moon. <clears throat> so you can see that rather nicely. Now, to my trained eye, I've been working with diffraction for over 30 years. Um, to my trained eye, I can actually read a lot into that pattern. Um, the first thing that you'll notice is, well, I wonder what strikes your uh, attention first. But what I notice first is the second moon and the third moon off above and below that are coming from the, uh, from the fact that there's uh, a, a periodic array of, of moons that are visible there. You can also see that there's a faint backwards moon in the center because the uh, moon is a very asymmetric object and the pattern is generating a ghost of the wrong uh, orientation of the moon. And if you look really closely, you can see little pixels on the moon that are coming from the, all coming from what has gone into the design of this little uh, piece of plastic that is, uh, uh, that is uh, used here. <clears throat> Okay, so curiosity got the better of me, and I put this under the microscope. Here is a uh, scanning electron microscope image of that piece of plastic, and here is a visible light image. And you can see it's got a lot of squares in it with a spacing of five microns, as, as I measured. And it's the five micron spacing here which gives the second and the third moon that I just showed you in that, uh, in that diffraction pattern. And what gives the pixelation is the fact that the pattern is repeated every, every millimeter on the piece of plastic that I put inside the, uh, uh, inside the beam there. Um, yes, I brought this one as well, but I just thought an everyday object like a telephone, if you want to, if we just go back and look at the, there, that's got a diffraction pattern as well. So it's got a lot of little extra spots that's coming from the pixels of the display of the telephone that, uh, that I'm shining the beam on. So these are sort of everyday microscopic objects on the micron size scale that you can look at with uh, laser light uh, diffraction. <clears throat> so now I'm going to move on to x-ray diffraction. And all, everything I've said about structure and seeing the structure through the diffraction pattern applies to x-rays, but on a thousand times smaller uh, length scale. So here we have um, a, a piece of, of sample that might contain a lot of crystals. And if we shine an X-ray beam from the diamond light source onto this, then we will get uh, a whole ring of uh, peaks. And if we look at the peaks that come out, then you can see that some of these have got uh, fine structure in them as well. And uh, we can then extract this fine structure peak and perform a mathematical calculation on it uh, called the Fourier transform and get, the, uh, and get an image of the uh, particular crystal that was giving this Bragg peak. And you get a lot of crystals, and so you can go through one by one and look at all of these. And this is one of the things that I'm currently doing with our experiments at the Diamond Light Source, um, looking at objects such as this one. These are chemically synthesized nanocrystals of silver 
Um, they're about 100 nanometers across. A nanometer, of course, is a thousandth of a micron, and a micron is about the smallest thing you can see, with, even with a microscope, um, using visible light. So this is really quite small. And these have got all kinds of applications in medicine and uh, nanotechnology. But these are uh, little crystals that are cubic-shaped, and if we shine a, an X-ray beam on one of those, we get a diffraction pattern. This is just a calculated one, but it's a three-dimensional version of that uh, uh, shape transform that I just showed you with the, uh, uh, with the laser. Now, <clears throat> Bragg in the 1930s, this is uh, Lawrence Bragg, uh, um, published a paper where he was trying to solve the question of how to go from this diffraction pattern to an image of the object. And there's a very important thing which is missing, which is the information about the relative phase of all of these different uh, spots that come out of a sample when you look at it. But Bragg ignored that, and he just uh, uh, asked the machinist to drill a plate with holes in it uh, with a size given by the uh, size of the spots that appear on, this, uh, uh, on the film of the diffraction experiment. And then you could shine a laser, except there weren't lasers in 1936. You shine a, a, a bright uh, light source on it, and you can replay that structure a thousand times bigger, and you can turn it into real space, and you get an image of the crystal uh, magnified a thousand times by the change of wavelength. And this is a crystal called uh, diopside that they were interested in. It's a calcium-magnesium silicate that's uh, very important in, inside the Earth's uh, crust. And the correct answer for that pattern, you can just calculate using the Fourier transform once you know the structure. And it's got the property that I showed you with the moon, that you have two, it's a double image with uh, the correct image and the reversed image superimposed on each other. So it needs a little bit of, of unfolding in order to, to uh, convert this into a structure. But this was a method that Bragg was uh, uh, working on in the 1930s. Now today we use a computer algorithm that uh, is just shown uh, here. We take the diffraction pattern, this uh, three-dimensional distribution of uh, spots, uh, diffraction spots, and we can invert it using the calculation to get an image of the, uh, of the object, and that's uh, demonstrated here. Here's the diffraction pattern actually measured from one of these silver cubes. There it's shown as a, as a movie scanning through the, uh, the, the center of the, uh, of the Bragg peak. And this is the result of the calculation. You get a faithful image of the cube uh, coming out. Um, and you also get information inside this object, because it's a three-dimensional image that you're getting. So you can then probe inside it and look at where the defects are and where the distortions are inside there. So the last thing I'm going to say is concerning um, medical applications. Uh, and I'll be a little bit brief here, uh, but please ask questions if uh, um, uh, if, if, if you would like me to give more information. Um, what we've been making are gold uh, nanocrystals about 200 nanometers across, and we make them on substrates, and the, the, they can be measured in the same way we measure this diffraction pattern, and we can invert that diffraction pattern to get images of the uh, three-dimensional images of the crystals, and we can see the distortions of the crystals through this uh, phase information. Um, so these things are then built into uh, uh, sensors. And this is the work of uh, Rachel McKendry, uh, my colleague in the LCN. Her academic department is medicine, and her application is to come up with ways that you can sense uh, levels of sugar in the blood and things like this. So you have an immersed uh, 
uh, a sensor which is running around inside blood serum, and you want to try to detect through nanotechnology, uh, try to detect the concentrations of these uh, uh, chemicals. So um, the, the way that uh, she does this is to take some linker compound, which has some organic uh, uh, binding agent, uh, such as an antibody on one end, and connect it through uh, a sulfur atom to a gold layer, which is then attached to a silicon uh, uh, so-called MEMS device, a micromechanical uh, readout device, which is a cantilever. And this cantilever is one micron thick, and when it has uh, stress applied to its surface, it bends, and you can read out the bending using an electronic circuit. Uh, what we're looking at is the chemical interaction between these biomolecules and the gold. And that's the, the one experiment I'm going to tell you about in the last couple of minutes. So here is a magnified view of one of these gold films. You can see that it's made up of uh, little chunks of gold that are about 200 nanometers across, if you care to measure them. And so our test crystal is a model of one of these uh, grains here. And if you measure the bending of the cantilever as a function of deposition time of the uh, sulfur-containing uh, biomolecule, uh, you get a, an interesting response here, which is spread out over many hours. So there's a slow reaction uh, taking place. So we reproduce that in our beamline. This is done on one of these end stations of the synchrotron. And we take a sheet of these gold crystals and then apply uh, the thial through a syringe uh, so that we don't disturb the sample uh, or disturb it as least, least little as possible. And then we measure the diffraction pattern. This is showing as a function of time after dosing and one hour, two hours, we get a a small but distinct change of the diffraction pattern that uh, we can then interpret in terms of the change of the uh, pattern of stresses that's taking place inside the sample. So when you invert the diffraction pattern, you get this image showing a, a, a negative distortion of the top of the crystal and a, a positive distortion of the bottom of the crystal. So there's a relaxation of the faces of the crystal, and you can model it by uh, uh, finite element uh, kind of calculations. But in order to get this pattern of distortion, you have to have a differential between the curved parts and the flat parts of the crystal. And, and that's what we conclude quantitatively from the experiments that are, that are shown here. And what causes this distortion can be seen in other structures of gold, very small gold particles where you have these gold-sulfur chemical uh, structures that are forming. These only form on small particles. And so the conclusion then is that we've got one kind of reaction taking place on the curved parts of the crystal and a different kind of reaction taking place on the flat parts. And the differential between these is what gives this strain response that can be built into a sensor. So what you're seeing is a macroscopic response of the sensor uh, to an atomic level chemical interaction which takes place between the biomolecule and the physical uh, gold species that is uh, uh, the, the, the active uh, components of the, uh, uh, of the device. Okay, so a reminder, we're, we're looking at 100 years of Bragg diffraction uh, with uh, uh, a little bit of a celebration, at least amongst the, uh, the people that care uh, uh, next year, starting in Adelaide in December, I believe, of this year. Um, I've told you a little bit about this mode of doing science using shared facilities, which is a little bit new and a little bit it takes some getting used to, but it's actually a very cost-effective and strongly uh, supported uh, way of doing science, uh, pros and cons, of course. 
I've told you a little bit about coherent diffraction imaging, which is what I spend most of my time doing. And the goal is to look at nanocrystals and to see how the shapes and strains de depend upon, the, uh, uh, upon their environments. And then I just briefly described how you can build that into a sensor that can detect a change of the chemical environment of a, uh, of, of a, uh, a film of gold inside, a, inside a, a liquid medium. So thank you for attention. I welcome your questions. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Any questions? Ah. So there's a mic coming. Sorry. Really interesting uh, presentation. Thank you. What are the big research questions now? Uh, in which, in uh, which branch of science? In, in, in nanotechnology? Um, or in? No, in diffraction. In and diffraction. The structure okay. of, um, um, well, one of the questions, uh, just because I was reading about it on the train on my way to do the experiment just uh, the other day, um, is the structure of what of the minerals that go on inside the Earth. So one of the uh, questions is what happens to minerals as, the, as you go down to th uh, thousands of degrees inside the Earth and, uh, and what, uh, what uh, structures they have. And, and that can be done rather nicely uh, using... Uh, a pressure cell which uh, takes a, a micron-sized piece of, of crystal from the Earth and compresses it to the pressures of the center of the Earth. And, in fact, something I didn't know was that there was a new phase of magnesium silicate, the compound I was just talking about, uh, was discovered that way. And it starts at 120 gigapascals, which is, which is very, very deep inside the Earth. And this was done... Um, uh, done, done by a group in Tokyo just, uh, just recently. So that's one of the science questions, earth sciences. And then in the medical area, a big user of these facilities uh, are so-called protein crystallographers who, who grow crystals of proteins, put the protein crystals in the beam, measure the diffraction pattern, and get an image of all of the atoms inside the, the proteins. This is a, probably one-third of the users of diamond do just that one, that one method. So those are two, two good examples. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, we have a couple in here. Yes. Yes, I had to be brief on the technical side of that, but in, it's actually quite an interesting anecdote with Bragg, because Bragg knew this, of course, uh, all along. And when he did that uh, simulation by drilling holes in a plate in order to, cal to, to, to use light to generate the diffraction pattern, the, the next generation of that experiment was to put little plastic uh, or mica slips over the holes to change the phase of the light going through to the correct phase that they'd actually discovered from the... Uh, from studying the crystal structure. So, so they were actually able to put in that phase information into that calculation a little bit later on. In our method, uh, we use a, 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 a big computer that does uh, iterative calculation uh, thousands of times over, and it uses the fact that the, uh, the, 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 the diffraction pattern can be measured more finely than necessary, and the, the, the extra information in between the, the minimum necessary sample points contains that phase information, which can then be extracted. 
There's another one. Yes, absolutely. Um, LCN, as it happens, not so much, but um, but uh, amorphous materials, um, they, they come a bit low on my list because they don't have this beautiful diffraction uh, property, uh, and it means that the crystallographic methods at least don't work very well, but um, there are many uh, good uh, diffraction methods which are perfect for looking at amorphous materials, and there's several of the faculty of the chemistry department that do this. There's a method called pair distribution function, which is uh, alive and well for looking at amorphous materials, and that's, uh, uh, that certainly works. But tens not, uh, amorphous nanomaterials are not so interesting, let me say, but maybe I don't want to be quoted for that. <laughs> It, it is aimed, I believe, as a glucose sensor for, uh, for measuring blood sugar levels uh, continuously. Because as you know, the, the standard medical practice is you take a prick and you measure the, the glucose three or four times a day. Um, it's a little inconvenient, but you could, um, in, you could actually attach a, or implant a, a sensor uh, that would give an electronic readout continuously of, uh, of uh, uh, blood sugar levels. I, I think that's the one that that Rachel has in mind. Yeah. Any other questions? It seems not. So I think um, we've finished uh, for today, but I'm sure you'd like to join me in thanking Professor Robinson in the usual.